0: Hello, and welcome to Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading in today's world. Our host is John U. Bacon, author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. And no, he's not making that up. Each week, we'll talk to amazing leaders from around the country and just about every field you can think of and pick up truths from their hard-won wisdom. In the words of John's fifth-grade teacher, Mr. Paddock, it'll be fast, fun, and we'll get it done. So please join us for an inspiring discussion. You'll be glad you did.
1: Today's guest is one of my all-time favorites, a man named Jim Hackett. If you're a Michigan football fan, as many of my listeners are, you will certainly recognize that name, but also he was the CEO of Steelcase Furniture for 20 years. He was the CEO of Steelcase at age 39, the youngest in their long history. Then, of course, the Michigan interim AD that brought in Jim Harbaugh and Nike, then went on to a little job at Ford Motor Company as the CEO for three years, and now he's also still helping uh, Ford out. So without further ado, Mr. Hackett, Jim, how are you today?
2: John, that's great. And maybe for the listeners, they should know I meet John Bacon uh, years ago when he was doing Bo's book, which you should read if you haven't read it. It's an incredible Uh, story of a great man and John captures his voice perfectly. And John was such a youngster at the time. And I I remember being amazed that Bo would never, you know, not have talent around him. So that he was so young and so talented. And so I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to see John's career, John, see your career, uh, expand in areas like you're now writing about because you really have a gift.
1: Jim, you're too kind, and I am certain to keep that clip, by the way. So yes, that's recorded. Thank you very much. Uh, Jim's been a hero of mine a long time. Our first conversation was back, I think, in 1999, somewhere in there, when I first started talking to Bo Schembechler, Jim's former football coach at the University of Michigan, about doing a book with Bo. And our first title for the book was called Bo's CEOs. And of course, on that very short list uh, of our favorite among Bo's former players, Well, was of course going to be Jim Hackett. We talked for probably about forty-five minutes in a car as you were driving around the state of Michigan, I believe, as the CEO of Steelcase. I think you did a lot of your calls that way. You had very little downtime as CEO, correct?
2: That's true, and I loved using the time in the car to do business like that because you I had the solidarity of just my own, you know, my own self in that space. I could drive with attention, you know, and and yet uh, it made the drive go faster. So, I, yeah, I probably the only person who never liked that technique was my wife, John, because <laughs> if she was sitting next to me, I was always on the phone. But at uh, any rate, yeah, I do remember that.
1: Uh, there you go. Well, good memory, of course, and it's a good way to get work done. You were born, surprisingly, perhaps, in Columbus, Ohio. And of course, you're both your father and your brother had great careers. Please tell us a bit about their careers and then your decision to go to the University of Michigan.
2: That's true. I Central Ohio was my my home. My father was a veterinarian from Ohio State University. Uh he graduated uh as captain of the OSU football team. He was an all-American his junior year, which is kind of important because back in those days, John, they only named 12 players. To the all-american team now my brothers and i tease him because we said it was during the war and everyone who was any good was was gone <laughs> but but he, a- he actually was pretty good and he wasn't in the war in world war ii because believe this they kept the veterinarians back uh as deferments because they wanted all the mds uh you know deployed to uh to, to support our servicemen that were in battle so the veterinarians were left um, in case Americans needed, uh, treatment, they needed somebody that had, uh, you know, that kind of skill. So, so it's a strange thing, but you know, it was an unbelievable time. And so, anyway, he prospered both professionally and he meets a guy named Paul Brown, who was his coach. And they have a long lived relationship, including my father helping Paul start the Cincinnati Bengals. So, so I, I, I then, um, Witness my oldest of, of three brothers go to ohio state and play for woody hayes and they had an incredible team uh that was the rex kern uh class and and so they had a they had a that was the team that michigan beats in 1969 in ann arbor and no one thought they could win and one of Bo's greatest wins so it just explains that the drama i was in the middle of was ohio state michigan you know and I didn't know, you know, where my heart would lie. But once I met Bo and then a guy named a a guy that was head of the finance uh, department, uh, Jim Pitchler, who uh, was on my recruiting trip, I spent like three hours with him and two hours with Bo. And I, and I realized I got it. I got what we now pitch is you can have it all. You can have one of the greatest educations in the United States. And you can, you can play at one of the most prestigious, um, in, in one of the most prestigious football programs. So I, I go to the, I go to Ann Arbor and I come back on North Central Airlines from Detroit to Columbus. And I get off the plane. There's my dad. Of course, this is way before all the security issues. My dad's outside, uh, the, you know, where you get off the plane and you come into the airport and he looks at me. We had this way of communicating. And he goes, "You son of a bitch!" Like that. <laughs> and he, he knew. And, and, he knew, and and I hadn't said anything yet. And then he says, "You son of a bitch!" And then he says, "And I'm not, I'm not I, and I'm not sing, singing that damn fight song." That's what he said. <laughs> so, I still love but you, was, but
1: there are limits.
2: <laughs> yeah, but he was really proud of his son, and and then I'll end this with: There's a famous uh, moment for me when my dad uh, writes Bo a letter. After we tied Ohio State my freshman year, I didn't play. Freshmen didn't really play then. But we tie them, and Michigan doesn't get to go to the Rose Bowl or any bowl back and, then, or any bowl. And John, John Bacon's written about that story. But what, what I can say, and I have a copy today. I've have I've seen it in the last five years. My dad wrote Bo. A letter and said, this is a travesty. You had the best program. And so I get goose pimples telling you that because that was my father's de facto endorsement of me uh, being in a legitimate program. And I know he believed that because John, he's been gone for over 20 years, but the la- you remember the wave of our victories against Ohio State in his last 10 years was, you know, was like what we're experiencing the other way right now. And he was he was quite despondent that Ohio State and Michigan weren't battling every year. We're one 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 year and one one the next year. Uh, But let's leave it that um, it explains a little bit about my reverence for everything in the past. I mean, I'm so respectful of it, but it doesn't guarantee that I think that's the future. And that's the way I thought about Uh, Michigan, I thought it was going to be the best program, and it turned out we had the best college record in football my four years that I got to play. I get to say that.
1: You do get to say that. You've got a ring to prove it, of course, Uh, and well-earned, naturally. We'll jump jump to that shortly. In the meantime, talking about leadership, let them lead. What did you learn about leadership from your father?
2: Well, you know, uh, Bill Willis, who was a, a very famous african-american football player i i denote his race because he was he he was arguably one of the two first men of color drafted in the nfl and he played with my dad and my dad roomed with him and 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 my dad experienced racism through bill's eyes so at a very young age i learned the story of how they don't want him eating with the team or in the hotel and my dad's tells the story. He's crushed by it. They he had a neat nickname. He was called Deacon. So he, my dad called him Deke and he and his wife, uh, would come to our houses. I was a kid all the time. In fact, when the Bengals started up, Deek and my dad would go to games together. He became a head of the Ohio youth commission. And there's a parallel story, uh, black and blue with Gerald Ford.
1: That's right.
2: And, 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 and a similar, uh, you know, situation where Gerald Ford and my dad stood up for, you know, diversity, uh, in a world where it was really unpopular. My dad was captain of the team. So was Gerald Ford. So the captains had to speak for their teammates. So I just learned kind of that, that you're in service of others, you know, and, and, um, it, 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 uh, it, 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 it manifests itself often when you get to lead but I will tell you, I'm now 66, as you guys are hearing me, the the pronouncement of me telling you that, that the one of the most important, I'm going to give you another one, but one of the most important things when you get to lead is that you have to think about you're in service of other people than yourself, is uh, a gift that I feel today that I got early in my life.
1: We'll get to that too, of course, and we're talking about service leadership and other Philosophies. I know that you've been a big backer of in your various leadership roles, Um, and from your father, what a great thing to learn. Before that was a phrase, uh, service leadership. Your dad was already doing that as a college student. That's pretty amazing.
2: Yeah, and he was the other thing. He he was such a kind person. You know, um, really was. uh, I'm married to my high school sweetheart, and she would say he was one of the kindest men that she she got to know, and. And so he had a big heart and was willing to you know to be there for everybody. He had he had his foibles too, and I we, my brothers and I will laugh about that, um as uh you know, as we characterize our own lives and you know, everyone has to look at themselves and their fathers and say, What what were the good things and the bad things? But by by the time his life ends, I couldn't have been prouder of everything he'd been through, you know, and the kind of life he lived.
1: Mm-hmm. That's all you have to know about that, of course. Now, your brother, of course, was a star at Ohio State. So was your dad. Um, at Michigan, you had the misfortune or the fortune, take your pick, of playing on utterly loaded teams—racks of All-Americans, racks of All-Big all Ten players, the NFLers from your teams. Of course, you watched those guys on Sundays for many years, win Super Bowls and the like. But you, as a fifth-year senior, were still the was still the demonstration team center. And I got a great scene from John Wangler, the freshman quarterback at that time, later a star in his his own right, at quarterback for Michigan. The fall of 77, and you're going against on the demo team, Calvin O'Neal, John Anderson, Dwight Hicks, Jerry Meter, and Ron Simpkins. Those five defenders are all Americans. They're all in the record books. And that's what you have to go against every day. Now, of course, John Wangler, with no red shirt back then, was getting killed on a daily basis. But he said... But Jimmy Hackett kept us together. He'd been taking all that for how many years? And he was not afraid of any of those guys. He'd always tell us, come on, guys, let's go. We got to give them a good look, that defense, that is, the demonstration team. So they'll be ready on Saturday. And that's how it worked. We were making those other guys better. Jim Hackett was one of those guys in that senior class with Rob Lido and the rest. A great class that formed my image of what a Michigan man really is. They had a quiet confidence. You just knew Jimmy was going to be a success. Not too many guys at Ford, I don't think, call you Jimmy, but those guys did. But they saw it early on. If you weren't going to be an NFL player, they could see the leadership in you from the get go. What did you learn from both Schimbeckler and from Michigan football that you took with you?
2: Well, and I just have to thank my teammate, John Wangler, for those kind comments. You know, and likewise, this, that gentleman was going to be a quarterback and lead men into battle and win. And he was incredible. You, the only the only thing I want to add to your list, John, because you're flawless with this, is Tim Davis was a middle guard, oh, sure, and he he had I think 18 tackles in the Ohio State game that year against an All American, and he and he disrupted Oklahoma's offense in the Orange Bowl. Um, and he was a he was a bear for me to block as a middle guard. <laughs> um, you know, from Bo, it's a it's a simple. Uh, lesson of integrity it's often repeated now by all of his players and what i should link for you is later as you you as my career uh, progresses through different things and i end up running Steelcase. uh bob Pugh, who um was our chairman for 30 years and of a notable family himself the pews of, of sure. philadelphia bob had this saying to me um That he came to me one day and he said, "Jim, you talk about team a lot." And and this is a World War II veteran. And they, as Tom Brokaw said, you know that generation didn't express themselves a lot. You know they had short sentences to the point. And he says, "You use the word team a lot." And he pauses. I'm waiting because I'm thinking I've made a mistake. I'm brand new CEO, very young, as as your story will share. And I think, what did I do wrong? And I wait, and I go, did I? do something. I don't get the word wrong out. He goes, no, I just want to remark that you understand that you have to have integrity in your relationships on a team. And now I'm thinking, have I betrayed somebody, you know, that's gone to him? Uh, I don't know why I was so insecure because I thought I was doing a good job, but he was just so, he was so, such a giant in my eyes. So then when he gave me coaching, And the way they did it, the way that generation did it, it was, it was like, you know, it was like Bitcoin is today. It was just so valuable. And he continues and says, you have to understand if you're going to lead a team, they have to trust you. They have to trust you, Jim. And, and for them to trust you, it means you have to operate with integrity because you can't tell them to trust you. They're going to determine who you are. Now what John Bacon just asked me and wrote about was that Bo Schembechler believed the same thing. He came at it a different way because he had, he talked about how you had to compete in a world where what good was it to win if you cheated, you know, particularly in, in football with recruiting violations or any kind of things that could go on to make a team in football more victorious. This gentleman that I love as much at Steelcase had the same theme. And then later I get to know president Gerald Ford much better sit in meetings where his ex cabinet members are together for his foundation. And I realized that he embodied the same thing that Bo and Bob Pugh talked about that these three men became my heroes, that they basically made it really simple that you're going to be under so much pressure, so much stress you're the president of the United States or your family's worth a lot of money or you're a football coach at Michigan. You have choices in the kind of man you want to be. And one thing no one can take from you, no matter what you achieve is the center of who you are. And and so I'm not perfect. None of us are, but I, I did try. I did sincerely try to think about being able to do an interview like this and say, I never cheated. And I didn't. And uh, and and that came, I, I cite those pe- those three people, you know, uh, influencing me in that regard.
1: And that's Mr. Pugh, Bo and Gerald Ford, Gerald Ford. All of them were
2: such giants. That's the word I was trying to grab a minute ago. Giants in their professions and, and in the eyes of others. And what was the common one common thing? You know, one was more boisterous than the other. One was more uh, introverted uh, shorter, taller, you know, um, but this was the common thing. Like they were cutouts of each other in terms of this, this, uh, the, the pressure to perform was not going to overwhelm their sense of the right thing. You know, that's a great
1: leaping off point for our next question. And along those lines, by the way, Gerald Ford, I was lucky enough to talk to him, uh, interview him a couple times on the phone never in person, but it was always a delight. Now, of course, he became a close friend of yours, as well as a mentor, underrated leader in many ways, I think. But one reason why Nixon picked him, of course, to be the vice president is what Americans needed more than anything else is to trust their government. And the best man he could find for that work, of course, uh, was President Ford. He gave me one great quote, a few great quotes, but one I'll use here. Uh, and that is that, you know, John, when you get to the Oval Office, you learn pretty quickly that no small problems, no easy problems get to your desk. Somebody else is already supposed to solve those. You only get the high inside curve balls. You only get the toughest questions to be answered really in the world. And that, of course, is pressure. Now, Steelcase is not quite the United States of America, but I'm sure at age 39, when you became CEO, you discovered pretty quickly the easy problems don't get to your desk. <laughs>
2: Yeah. And we have a moment of truth at Steelcase. This happens for every leader. I get to counsel CEOs today. I wrote a letter to my successor at Ford where I kind of go on about what you just referenced from Gerald Ford and Steelcase in an early moment. We make this really cool product that we discover there's a, there's a a potential misinterpretation by the buyers about the fire codes. And so a simple way is inside. Uh, buildings, there's fire codes because of the Chicago and Boston fire codes that vary across the country. And Steelcase is a company of extreme integrity and it decides to, to devise all of its performance features to its, to the highest standards. And something happens in the way this product's made that it meets specific fire codes, but not all. So I have to make a decision to recall it. And it's a billion it's a billion dollars worth of installed furniture. So I mean we have to go in and take people's computers out and and at night change out the part. And I remember the pressure um at the moment. One somebody said to me, you know, Jim, everything burns. Uh, you know, and we're you know, we're above everybody. And I had that reflection that you just gave me. And I said, no, this is the right thing is our customers didn't know we have to protect them. So we recalled, all. Now, John, this is a sincere and candid. Two weeks after we finish uh, replacing the last product at the Pentagon, uh, 9-11 happens and a jet crashes into the side. And of course, there is a fireball that envelops one of the pie shaped wings of that building. And I go to bed that night you know like every american just tragically tied to the tv you know and what was going on but i i remembered saying to myself no one knows this but the people inside that building had the best product in the world if it was ours to deal with the fire code and that's that gives way to the phrase there's no you know softer pillow than a clear conscience and so that's why i tell this story so that you're the high f- inside curveballs, if you think about that, you you know, if you're the only one knows and you can get around it and and we don't have to take the billion dollar product back, then nine eleven happens and you now have to live with the fact that could, did somebody now um, deal with greater threats because of lower fire codes? And it's the opposite. We had replaced all, we had replaced all the product in the Pentagon that we had sold them. And,
1: at and so at
2: great cost. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. The management, uh, you know, the management didn't get any bonuses for a couple of years. I mean, this is the cascading effect of the right decision. You know, Bo Bo's going to tell himself, if I don't get that running back, I won't pick a name. But I know one that goes on to be, you know, really successful. uh, And maybe that team does really better in the rankings or maybe even won a national championship with that player. He has the soft pillow and he did he did very well, thank you very much, operating with his approach. And so yeah, Steel Case ended up being a really successful company after it replaced the product, and our customers trusted us more for coming to them and saying, you know, you don't know about this, but we're gonna take it back and fix it before there's a problem. And of course no one died because of that. We had no lawsuits, nothing. And And I didn't have to stand in front of my employees and our employees and say, you know, I I hid this from you. Uh, I was the opposite. This is what the story is. This is what we need to do. It's the right thing. And i learned that from these other men.
1: That is profound, by the way. And I'll no doubt say this one again before we're done. There is no softer pillow than a clear conscience. That gym is beautiful. And what people have to realize, of course, we talk about integrity in the abstract, like do the right thing. Well, of course, do the right thing. Do the right thing despite temptation. Do the right thing despite the cost you're going to take the hit on when in, when in fact you recall that furniture and you're in the job not that long, of course, at that point. And here you have to explain this. All you know at first, no one knows about 9-11, of course, when you make this call. All they know is that in the short run, it's a PR problem and it's a big financial hit. That's all they really know. So you take that hit anyway, because it is the right thing to do. As Bo often told me, don't confuse simple with easy. Doing the right thing is simple, but it's not always easy.
2: And, you know, my counsel to younger folks, because I have these challenges at Ford in my tenure of 41 months there, where I would talk to my, it turns out he's going to be a lifelong friend, Bill Ford. And I would say, we'd have a, uh, kind of a crude term. We're going to go into the fan blades on this, meaning we can see the spinning (laughs) negative and we're going to walk right into it because it's the right thing to do. I'm not a martyr. Um, I'll be okay. And, you know, he was, was unbelievably supportive when the negative news would come out. Um, you know, I have a reporter that chases me today, still in the Detroit free press who, um, I went over their head, uh, because they wrote a really bad story about one of our employees and they and they brought up some really bad things that that had no business being in the press and I called the editor and said look this this is a mistake this person made years ago and they they've recovered from it and they're wonderful and their kids know they're wonderful and I don't understand why this is still in the paper and and the editor was really positive and it, 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 the story gets fixed, John, and you're a journalist. Mm,
1: that's rare. But by the way. I
2: but 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 I but I'm now I've paid a price, you know, right. with the reporter, because I think I'm now in their sights, uh, you know, for eternity. And that's OK, because the right thing was done, you know, so. So that, so I I have a soft pillow at night. I know exactly why that reporter's picking on me, and I get over it pretty quickly. Bo would, you know, think of the strength. I'm laughing because you think of the strength. If somebody was writing about him, he he you know, he never changed a practice schedule or a meeting because of that kind of feedback, and so he was a great model for me. And and we should just leave this point with saying. If you're going to go into leadership and you and maybe you didn't do well in math or maybe um, you you have trouble sleeping or maybe speaking publicly is hard. These are all kinds of things that happen. But you can you can be really great at your job if the one variable about operating with integrity isn't, you know, isn't uh, light. And and you can build on that strength. And so I that's why I go on about it so much when I get a chance.
1: Well, uh, you and Warren Buffett, of course, he had a great quote about this. He said, when you're trying to hire somebody for an important job. You want three things, integrity, uh, talent, and ambition. And He said, and if you get two and three without one, you're in big fat trouble because that guy's got the energy and the ambition to screw up a lot of things without integrity. And following that up, a company I work with occasionally is A.G. Edwards. The founder had a great line. He said, we can fix anything but a lie. Let's start there. I'm talking with Jim Hackett, the former CEO of Ford Motor Company, the past athletic director at the University of Michigan, and the previous CEO of Steelcase Furniture. If you want to learn more about Let Them Lead, the podcast or the book, you can find it at LetThemLeadbyBacon.com. Now, back to Jim Hackett.
2: Now one, and those are uh, important uh, standards. It, it's fun and, and, and enjoyable. To imagine then in a role play that says, okay, when is that a bad idea? So when I would speak at, at Michigan Business School, I'd have a senior second term MBA, a second year MBA say, okay, Jim, I'm about to smuggle water across the border in the Middle East, uh, and I have to lie to the border agent, you know? And so they're trying to make situations where, you know, not doing the, not telling the truth is in competition with doing the right thing. And, and so he's trying to trap me, you know, into that. And I said, well, the the candor I will give you is I would do everything I could to save those people and do it with integrity. Like, you know, uh, the line to the, to the guard at the border is one technique. You haven't gone <laughs> through the other 17 yet that, <laughs> that we might bring to bear so that we don't have to do that. Uh, because, When you have to go back and rationalize why you did something so that others now trust you, you're starting to be on a slippery slope.
1: Great point. And again, it's often a lack of imagination. What about the other 17 ideas? Start there. If the last thing you have is a real dilemma, then okay. But as your old coach once told me, I asked him once, did he have a hard time with doing the right thing? He said, We knew what the right thing was, so we did it every time, and I slept well at night. That's There's your answer. So, And I will address on this website, by the way, I wrote a long story on Dr. Anderson and Beckler, and that will be available uh, for all listeners after this. In the meantime, in 2014, Michigan Athletics is in a lot of trouble. Um, 60,000 fans for the Maryland game or so. The team is losing. Nobody's very happy. You get a call from President Mark Schlissel asking you about becoming Michigan's next athletic director. Now, you've only recently retired. From Steelcase, you promised your wife, Kathy, whom you met in kindergarten, of course, uh, some time off, some time in California with your grandkids, uh, a lot of uh, good years to look forward to. But then you call a friend of yours, an advisor, who gave you great advice about some jobs, as you pointed out, some jobs are for God and country. Please tell us that one.
2: Yeah, it- this is a kind of unexpected events. I call them, uh, in life. And, you know, I'm retired from steel case and I'm on boards and I, I kind of think I have things mapped out. You know, um, I was scheduling a hip replacement of the other side of, of my body. The one, one before had been done. And so these are, these are uh, challenging surgeries and I wanted to do that well. And I get this call and, um, I, I, in my mind, I just thought I never really wanted to be an athletic director, partially because with my dad's involvement with the Bengals, he was, he was an early investor and that gave us access to a lot of the, you know, building of the team and watching that. I, I had a view of the kind of the underbelly of athletics from the administration standpoint. I mean, it's a, it's a difficult job and, and in some ways, I was worried it was narcissistic, in other words, that the people you know that you either in the way in the background and and the benefit of that is, of course, you're in the background, or you're way in the foreground to try and make things happen, and we saw we witnessed where that was difficult for some uh, personalities, and it just it just didn't feel like it fit me and but but there was a what the world doesn't know is President Slissel had talked to President Coleman. And she uh had kind of suggested names to him because he was just on campus, I think, 10 or 11 weeks. That's, and part, that's came right. From, yeah. And so somehow she mentions my name. So when he teased that up with me, you know, that just warmed my heart because I had such respect for Mary Sue Coleman. And the previous, and so president. I thought, the previous president, pardon me, and an extraordinary leader. And. Um, and, and Mark was just sincerely like, can you help me out? But what he, he didn't offer the job in the beginning. What he did is he goes, what do you think I ought to do? And well, the world should know that Dave Brandon, the, 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 the sitting AD at that time, of course was a teammate of mine. He was three years older than me and little known is when he graduates from Michigan, he goes to work for Procter and Gamble. And when I graduate, I went to I went to work for Procter and Gamble, and I had the same first boss that Dave did. So Dave's reputation was sterling in the sense of being a uh, you know an extraordinary talent, and so I didn't really want to follow Dave in not in, out of a negative. It's just that you know he I couldn't imagine him doing much wrong. And there's controversy around his time, but I just knew him. Uh, from the other perspective, and I thought, well, goodness, this means that if you walk into this, there's not going to be much room for success, right? Because, you know, they had a pretty top shelf, uh, CV and the guy that, in Dave Brandon. But what, what, what Mark and I talked through is a little bit of what you and I just talked about is what makes great leaders and when you find difficult positions and what does it mean to walk in the fan blades on some issues. And so there was a couple of talks like that where I think two or three of them. And he comes back and he goes, you know, when i more I listen to you, I think this is what Michigan could use right now if you would come. And I go, really? And he goes, yeah. And, you know, I said, well, how long do you want me? I don't know. And how long do you want to do it? I said, not very long.
1: <laughs> and and, and I, because you, I, you're, I you're clearly not trying to get this job, Jim. <laughs> yeah.
2: I, and that's when that's when he goes, well, you need to make a decision, Jim. And I call my friend Gail Jones, who's the president of Diversified. He helped place a lot of talent in the Obama administration, and he—that's when he made the phrase. He goes, Jim. Sometimes when people come and are asked to do things, it's not because they're, you know, advancing their career. Or you're doing it in service of others. And there we go. There's that theme again. And I thought, yeah, you know, what? What a great. um Challenge is, can I go and serve others in this job? And I called Mark back and said, without making it too corny, is I'm willing to do this if you think that it's okay for me to be motivated in service of others. Like, and, and in that regard, you know, how can I serve the fans of Michigan and, and the, uh, the staff and the coaches? I mean, I got to think that through and, but I'll come. And so when I took the job, I thought it'd be 90 days. I thought that my job was to go in and find a new athletic director. And and it turns out that we had a more pressing issue that we had to deal with about the direction of football and and I end up leaving 18 months later, you know. And so uh John, it it's a blur even today when I think how fast everything happened, but I will tell you uh, I will confirm to everybody listening, uh, we, op- we operate with extreme integrity. Even when the regents had to hear something that they didn't like, I, I had to tell them. Uh, an example would be I had to tell the regents, it's really not helpful if you stand on the sidelines beyond the warm-ups. You know, we we're, were too crowded and a lot of them didn't like hearing that, you know. Like, I bet. We, uh, but, but I, but that's not the right thing. You know, we're trying to make it a safer place or, Uh, in going to talk to Brady, hope, you know, I thought he was an extraordinary, um, competent coach and his dad, uh, if you knew was a really good coach. And so he had all the underpinnings of being really successful. Um, and I thought if I had more time, if you you recall the speech I gave when I had to say that Brady was leaving, I said, if I had more time, not because I'm special, but I think development would, could have helped here. And but but unfortunately, you know, we we'd already invested the three years and I and if I'm going to commit uh, to Brady, I don't want to sign a one year agreement. And we go through this whole question again, you know, so I couldn't see myself doing I couldn't see the the university staying another three years. That's the problem with these high profile jobs. And that's that's what leads to the Harbaugh search. But there was more than Jim on the list. Uh, I've never disclosed some of the other names because I don't, I don't want to disrupt the background of those folks, but there was an extraordinary few coaches who wanted the job. I think we got the most extraordinary coach in the United States, the most by far in Jim Harbaugh. And, and I'm still very, very positive about him. Um, But it's a difficult thing to come in uh, to Michigan and, try and up in the whole uh past and get things situated. And so you're starting to see the benefit of that. If we don't have COVID, you know, and I know everyone had COVID in the sports world, um, you know, it's gonna be like we lost two years on Jim's uh progression, not one. And so I'm I'm really optimistic, John, about the season. We haven't had a chance to talk, you and I, but I'm I'm really optimistic.
1: We'll talk again about that some other day, of course. But uh Uh, You also brought in Nike, a very popular move, uh, swapping out Adidas at that point. Uh, But moving on, of course, what happens when you step down from Michigan? Another gigantic job finds you that you're not looking for, and that is, of course, CEO of Ford Motor Company. I know we don't have too much time left, but I'd I'd be very amiss if I did not get to uh, your tenure at Ford. Uh, A lot of big changes during that time. What was the hardest thing about leading one of the world's biggest companies, and what was the most exciting thing?
2: The hardest thing is when you come off the board, um, you know, you're sitting in a position where the CEO serves at the pleasure of the board. So you're a peer of the people who are now going to judge you. And that's a difficult that's a difficult transition. Um, It's one in which I'm sorry, this theme repeats itself where I wasn't sure that I was the best pick if they needed that. And and Bill and I had long talks uh, among other directors. Um, if I do yeah, then, this, that's job. Bill Ford
1: Jr. Of course.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Bill Ford. And, and, uh, because what be really simple about it is I believe that the evolution of any business is likely to find itself when it has an extraordinary history. We can talk about Michigan football as well, where its fitness, meaning its ability to compete, uh, has never been questioned in the past, but it's not going to be certain in the future. It just this future is is not a carbon copy of the past and from my board tenure uh i had witnessed that ford was behind in some areas that i think it needed to be leading uh some now we can we can say like none of the vehicles were connected they're now all connected and in the recent uh market uh analyst meeting that jim farley my successor had he said we'll have 30 or 35 million vehicles connected uh, by 2023 20, 24, something like that. Um, and, and so because that platform, John, allows us to take more care of our customers. And Tesla was already doing that um, uh, in a much smaller fleet than Ford has. So it was a bigger challenge for us. Uh, but we got that done. And Europe was a problem because the social plans in Europe that that are in a good thing they protect workers make it hard when the world pivots and you have to change your industrial platform it's really difficult and so ford had not really made much profit in europe uh we now fixed that we've been able to 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 adjust and that took basically the time i was there and a little more to get that done and then probably the third big challenge uh it's kind of an infamous moment is when i make the argument that if you draw a, pa- a black pencil around a torus a picture of a torus and you take a black pencil and you draw an outline around it that's called a silhouette and and if you ask yourself how long has that silhouette been here well that that isn't the silhouette shape that henry ford made like that outlines different and the outline of what was going to become the Mustang Mach-E was different than the Taurus. So I I had to make the decision that we had to quit making the most popular vehicle in history in the company uh, outside of the F-Series. And it was like a bomb went off in the press. And this this non-auto guy doesn't know what he's doing. And And I said to him, it's, you got to think about these as silhouettes, not as cars, because you can have any shape you want in the future, as long as it makes money and the customers love it. And so that, that shift to, um, the Bronco and the mach and, uh, the Maverick now, these are all things I couldn't talk to you about, John, when, when you interviewed me for the Econ Club, these were, these were the kinds of things that I was brought in to, uh, put a bellows to the embers, so to speak, like the Bronco was already being talked about and electric vehicles were always being talked about. But I don't think we were on the right path with many of these things. And yet I couldn't prove the profit potential uh, of these things. And I couldn't talk about them because we didn't want the competition. So that I just answered the first question. That was the hardest thing, uh, is that you 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 have to put your own ego behind. You're in service of what's good for the company, and I'm really proud of those 41 months because these things are proving to be really sound uh, strategies. I think the proudest moment is uh, being with Bill Ford Jr. in Los Angeles. He had Idris Elf on his one side, and I had Jay Leno on the other, and we are launching the Mustang Mach E. Uh, to great fanfare and you got to hold on for a minute that's in October uh John of 2019 that's when I actually am captain uh i captain that day for the Michigan Michigan State game and I, I Jim asked me to do that and I go god it's gonna be tough and I get on a plane and I fly after the game to LA to do the launch the next day that Sunday with these with the global launch on the internet. So I was tired and it was really exciting. And, and yet we won car of the year uh, for that vehicle just this year, because it's just now started shipping. So that, that happens to be uh, the end of the story with the Mustang Mach-E. It makes car of the year. And, and so, yeah, I had a smiling moment there where I thought it was worth it.
1: <laughs> to say the least, Jim, that's uh, not a bad weekend, as we would say. So no. I know you, I know your time is tight. That's a great story. Um, last one I've got to ask you: uh, advice for young leaders or new leaders, I should say, uh, on their way up.
2: Well, we covered some of this, you know, which is um, that you 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 got you want if you want to be a leader, you have to have trust. There's not like a thousand other variables. And and it doesn't mean you're going to be their best friend or you, or you can't say no or yes. You just have to have integrity in what you do. So I go at great lengths to try and teach now the ability to think, like to do, do a deep analysis uh, of data and feelings and then act decisively, like you couple those things like a door hinge. If you take one end, end of the hinge off, if you go, look, we don't have time to think. We just need to do that door is going to fall off. Or if you think, I don't know what to do. I got to keep thinking that door will fall off. They have to be combined in a way where the thoughtfulness and the action are, are so tied together that people say, we have comfort that you're here because that went well. The thinking part went well and the doing part went well. Um, we, and we talked about integrity. I, the other thing is in, and this is important, John. Given our history together, I think you'll identify with it. And I witnessed this in you, my friend. I'm I'm sorry to flip the tables, but Bo used to say to everybody, and you wrote it: "You either get better or you get worse. You don't stay the same." Now we find out later, I like do, that Einstein actually is the is the, generates this comment. And I did not know about, that. Yeah, he starts these state shifts, you know, about the notion of the way things are constantly in competition, you know, um, and Darwin proves this in other ways. So you just think about the state of things are fighting for fitness. And I introduced this at Steelcase and later at Ford and the Ford press wasn't as fond of it. But I really believe for young people, if you can get this principle, it'll serve you well. And the way to get it is the way maybe Bo Schembeckler explained it versus Einstein, which is that Bo always felt that as a team uh you would work hard you'd work as hard, you wanted to work harder than anyone and you would win and then he would say to himself that's not going to be enough because everyone else is getting better around me so how do i even get better well it's true as you're climbing the ladder and you want you have a tendency it's human nature to watch everybody else and 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 maybe talk down their performance because you don't want them to get ahead of you but that's the opposite notion Bo did not talk down Ohio State. He said, he said, they're going to be better. He said, they're going to be better. Jim Hackett never talked down Tesla. Jim Hackett said, uh, a lot of people made fun of Elon. I didn't in the beginning because he was idiosyncratic. I said, he's a rocket scientist for goodness sake. And he's, and you know, and he's, he's going to be a pretty, pretty, pretty tough competitor. How do we get better than him? And that was the mantra behind the Mach-E. How do we do something actually better than Tesla can do? Um, so you if you if you operate with this, John Bacon, I've seen you get better. you know you've taken on the challenge of more than one media platform. You've taken on the challenge of different story structures. You've taken on the challenge you know of reading and learning yourself, and I tell the listeners that John gives a lecture on the history. At, at a Michigan athletic event, it's on the, it's on YouTube and it's one of the most extraordinary talks I've ever heard given at Michigan. And, and so you, you have fashioned yourself as really a great historian, also a great storyteller and a great teacher. And so I, I can't wait to have you tackle the next topic because in the history, there's these great lessons about how the fitness of things presents itself in how we have to keep uh, rising above to be better. So that's that's my pardon, um, well suggestion.
1: You are too kind on my front, of course, and very helpful to current and future leaders. I'll walk away with three gigantic takeaways. One is you cannot make your people trust you. You have to show them. Sometimes you've got to walk into the fan blades with decisive thoughtfulness or a thoughtful decisiveness. Take your pick. And perhaps my all-time favorite, there is no softer pillow than a clear conscience. Not a bad list, Jim. Uh, And once again, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. I really appreciate it.
2: You too, John. And uh, go blue.
1: Go blue, my friend. I get in trouble for that, by the way, but I got to say it sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Never. (laughs) Never. There you go, pal. Hey, you're the best, Jim. Thank you so much.
0: Okay, John. Take care.
1: You too. Thanks
0: for listening to Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading in today's world. You can connect with our host, John U. Bacon, author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team, by visiting his website, letthemleadbybacon.com. We hope you had some fun, learned a few things you can use tomorrow, and think about the rest of your life. Come back next week for more Unexpected Lessons in Leadership, and we'll see you then.